If you have a copy of God's Word, you can go to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. We're fascinated by power. All of us are at some level or another fascinated by power. It may be power in creation. We may see the world around us, be fascinated by the ocean, be fascinated by a storm, be fascinated by the strength of a mountain. It may be uh, that you got caught up in the Olympics or you like sports and you were fascinated by the power of an athlete, the ability to swim a certain distance and not drown, the ability to run really, really fast or for a really long time, jump really high, all of these kinds of things. They're, at some level, we're fascinated by that power. Even when we begin to imagine, right? Our imaginations can quickly take us to the idea of a person or a group of people or a situation where there's immense power. So those of you who are fans of um, superheroes and maybe even the Marvel Universe, right? This is part of the deal. You ask this question, if you were a superhero, who would you be and what would your superpower be and all this kind of stuff because we're fascinated by that. But even when we go there with our imagination, we immediately end up with a problem because the moment you give a group of people or a person immense power, the problem of authority comes. How will it be used? Who gets to decide how that power is handled? Well, this morning as we come to Luke chapter 7, we come to someone who is greater than a Marvel comic book character, greater than any ocean, than any mountain, greater than any athlete. We come to the one who has all power and all authority, and Luke is screaming at us to see him, and it's the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we're staying in the Gospel of Luke because it's the waters that we've been swimming in, and so we're all acclimated to these waters, and we feel comfortable here, having been through our series on the Meals with Jesus, our graceful series. And what I thought we would do as we transition between the Gospel of Luke and then jump into Esther is I thought we'd find a place in Luke where some of the same themes that we'll see in Esther come out in Luke. And here's one of the main differences. Where in Esther, God may be hidden. In Luke, he's there physically in human form in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, we're also going to do something quite unique this morning because I am not going to preach one section of chapter 7 we're going to go through the entire chapter together. So I hope you picked a comfortable seat. I hope you like the people around you and they don't have bad breath. Just joking. No, what I want us to do is I want us to see the flow of what Luke presents to us because Luke purposely orchestrates these things to present us with the power and authority of the Lord Jesus Christ and then to show us the reactions to that power and authority. So I'm not going to read the entire chapter before I try and walk through it and preach it. That would take a really long time. So we're just going to walk through it together, and then later this afternoon you can read through it, and you can tell me later all the things that I missed. But as we come into chapter 7, Jesus has just wrapped up his sermon on the plain. And so we see that in verse 1. It says, after he had finished all his sayings and the hearings of the people, he entered Capernaum. So Jesus enters Capernaum, and interestingly enough, verse 2, Luke throws our attention on a centurion, not a Jew, but a Gentile, a Roman, a soldier, a man who would have had at least a 100 soldiers under his, under his authority, a man who would have not been the most powerful or the most wealthy, but he was a man of means. He had power. He had authority. And interestingly also is the fact that 
as we read through the story, it seems as though Jesus and this centurion never actually see each other. They never stand face to face. But Luke wants us to see this centurion. And he wants us first to see the predicament that this centurion is in. He's a man of wealth, a man of power, but he has a problem. He's got a servant that's highly valued who is sick, not just with a cold, but sick to the point of death. I think it's reasonable to assume that this centurion has probably done all within his power to get his servant back to health. But he's not been able to. He's come to the end of his abilities. There's no more medicine that he can offer, no more doctors that he could go to. None of those things have helped. If this continues, the outcome is going to be that the servant is going to die. But the centurion hears about Jesus, verse 3. He probably heard about the miracles that Jesus had performed. And he's heard now that Jesus is in town. And so he sends to Jesus a group of Jewish elders. This is different than the religious leaders. These would have been respected, probably older men in this Jewish community. And he sends them to Jesus. Now, we're told that he sends them to Jesus because later on he says he did not consider himself worthy to go. So he sends these elders. Now these elders go to Jesus and verse 4 tells us they plead with Jesus on behalf of this Gentile. Now already that if that's kind of a mind-boggling situation. But they plead and their pleading could not be more misdirected, misguided. Because they get before Jesus and they plead on behalf of the centurion for Jesus to come and heal this servant and their primary plea is that this man is worthy. He's worthy. He's worthy to have you do this for him because of all these good things about him. He loves the Jewish people, verse 5 tells us. He, he even is the one who built our synagogue. So Jesus, you, you should do this. You have to do this. These Jewish leaders, uh, these, Jew, these elders, they, they, they will we'll see this same kind of attitude later on in this chapter this idea that, that, that by um, doing good things, uh, this Jesus who has lots of power can now almost come under my control and has to do what I say. We'll come back to that thought later. Despite their misguided pleading, Jesus decides to go with them. Verse 6 tells us that, and he went with them. Now, there are questions here that we don't have answers to. Because somehow the centurion finds out that Jesus is on his way to his house. And when Jesus is near the house, he sends another uh, set of messengers. Now, it may have been that Jesus had told these Jewish religious leaders to be, or these Jewish elders to begin with, don't ask Jesus to come to my house, just ask Jesus to say the word and my servant can be healed. We don't know. But when he finds out Jesus is on the way to his house, Jesus is almost there. He does what seems absurd. He sends another group of messengers to the Lord with this message. Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Now imagine that. This is a Roman citizen. This is a centurion. This is a man of wealth. And yet with a homeless Jewish teacher, rabbi, he considers himself unworthy to have him come into his house. Verse 7, he says, goes on with his message, he says this, Therefore I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. 
but say the word and let my servant be healed. And then he goes on, as it were, to tell a parable to the great teller of parables, Jesus. For I too am a man set under authority, with soldiers under me. I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. All the parents are highlighting that. They're going to quote that to their children later. What is he saying? He's saying, I don't have to do things. I don't have to be present to have my will carried out because I am a man of authority. And so I say to a soldier, go do this. And he goes and he does it. I say to another, come here. And he comes here. The same with my servants. But this man somehow understands that Jesus has even greater authority and so he understands that Jesus doesn't even have to be physically present in order to heal his servant. Now in this story, Luke tells, the miracle becomes an afterthought. It's like a little add-on at the end, like the credits are already rolling and then it says, oh, by the way, <laughs> the servant was healed. That's verse 10. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. The climax of the story is not the healing of the servant, which you would think it would be. The climax of the story is verse 9. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. What was it about the centurion's faith? Well, it wasn't the fact that he believed that Jesus had power. People had been coming from all around believing Jesus had power. They'd come from all over the place for Jesus to heal them. It wasn't just that Jesus had power. It was an understanding of the immense authority that Jesus had. This centurion believed that Jesus didn't even need to be physically present, but that he commanded such power and had such authority that he only needed to say the word. And his servant would be healed. The servant who with all of his power and authority, he was totally incapable of healing, totally incapable of helping. Jesus could speak a word and he would be healed. Or she would be healed. Now, I, th I think Luke wants us to assume that's exactly what Jesus did. And the servant is healed. There's no reason to believe that Jesus ever actually showed up at that house, stood there with that servant, laid his hands on the servant, or any of those types of things. But from a distance, spoke a word, and the servant is healed. Now just consider that for a moment, because even nowadays, with all of our technology, we do not have this capacity. I don't care. You can Zoom all you want to. Right? You can have a consultation over the phone. You can ask Google a lot of things, but Google cannot do surgery on you. A surgeon who happens to be perhaps on the other side of the world might be able to give instructions to a surgeon that's present with you, but someone is going to have to touch you in order for you to be healed, in order for you to be operated on. This is inconceivable that someone could simply speak a word and at the speaking of that word a disease would listen a disease that was leading to death so you have that in your mind right well then Luke wants us to run to another situation 
So follow him. Follow us together, right? Here we go. Verse 11. Soon afterward. How soon afterward? Well, Luke's not clear, but he wants us to see this. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd were with him. And as he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who was dead was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. Now the centurion had a a difficult situation facing him. The situation that Luke runs us to now is not difficult, it's hopeless. Death has ravaged this woman's life. Once already in that her husband has died, and now a second time in that her only son and possibly her only child has died. He's not sick. He's dead. There is nothing to do. There's no medicine to administer. There's no operation to perform. The text tells us that a considerable crowd has gathered. Now think about the power of a crowd. Unfortunately, we've witnessed this over the past year in both positive and extremely negative ways. Have we not? In our own country. Think about the power of a crowd of people. What, it can, what can happen. What they can accomplish. Just think for a moment right now, you individually, with the, all of the resources you have, financially, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, all the resources you have, what could you accomplish? Now look at this room around you, all these people around you. How much more could this crowd accomplish than any one of us could individually? How much more resources come together? Knowledge comes together. Ability comes together. This group could accomplish way more than any one of us could, right? I mean, we might argue about it every step of the way, but we'd eventually get there. This crowd is there, and this considerable crowd that Luke wants us to see, a crowd that's coming out of the town, and the crowd that's following Jesus, all of these people, all of their resources, all of their ability, all of their knowledge, they can only do one thing. Weep with this woman. Enter into her mourning, because for all of the power that that crowd has, they can do Nothing. It's a hopeless situation. We need to feel that and we need to know that so that we understand verse 13, everything changes. Not based on a crowd, but on a single person. Verse 13 says, and when the Lord saw her, I love that Luke writes that. Luke is writing this looking back, by the way. And it's almost like I picture him so giddy to, to point to Jesus that he can't contain himself to get to the end. And he's like, hey, that guy, he's the Lord. That's the guy. So he says, when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. Now listen to me. If you take verse 13 out of context, what Jesus says does not sound compassionate at all. Would you dare to go to a funeral like this one, go to a widow who is mourning the death of her only son, look her in the face and say, out of compassion for you, I'm telling you, stop crying. 
That'd be an incredibly insensitive thing to say. It would sound like things that I've said in moments like this when it's so hopeless, but I still want to try and fix it, that I end up saying something completely idiotic. But it's different with Jesus because despite the condition of the crowd and the woman and the dead man, Jesus is not powerless. So he looks at her and he tells her, do not weep. Then he came up and he touched the beer, which would have been a plank that this, this, this body would be laying on covered in a sheet. And the bearers stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. Now, what is it that the centurion said about Jesus? What was it that he said through the messengers that went to Jesus? What was it about his faith that Jesus marveled at? Was it not this that the centurion sent message to Jesus saying, but say the word and my servant will be healed. And now Luke runs us to an even more hopeless situation where nobody can do anything, where death's grip has already latched onto this young man and Jesus stands there. He doesn't perform an operation. He doesn't do some kind of incantation. He speaks a word. And listen to how Luke describes it. Verse 15. And the dead man sat up. Now Luke is not giving a prequel here to the Walking Dead series to zombies. He wants to emphatically tell us it wasn't the guy next to the dead guy. It wasn't somebody who had fallen asleep during the funeral. It was the guy who was dead who heard the word of Jesus and set up. But speak the word. He begins to talk. And the reason that Jesus told this widow to not weep becomes clear because Jesus gives him back to his mother. That is extraordinary power and authority. That is unmatched power and authority. You and I can't say to a cold, go away, and it listens. You and I can't, for all of the power of all of the governments in the world, we can't stop a simple virus. We try and implement all kinds of things and we argue about how they should be implemented and we try and come up with vaccines and we do everything we can. We can't stop one virus and yet the Lord Jesus Christ, not straining, not grunting, not hollering and yelling like I am, speaks a word and sickness leaves a servant who's going to die, speaks a word and death itself must go. What happens in that moment is inconceivable to us. Somehow, the soul of this man comes back and is reunited with his body. Now, I don't know what kind of nightmares he had after this, 
but he was alive. He was alive. I don't care how powerful you are. I don't care how fit you are. I don't care how much money you make. I don't care how you vote. I don't care what country you live in, what ethnicity you are. Not a single one of us has the power to turn away death. It comes for all of us. But Jesus with a word says, Arise. And a dead man sits up. That's power. That's inconceivable power. And this morning, one of the things I want you and I to understand is that our problem is never that our God is too big. Our problem is always that our God is too small. Your imagination cannot contain Him. Your thoughts cannot wrap their arms around Him. You think that He is powerful? He is more powerful still. We are worn out. We're exhausted. We're all tired of hearing about COVID and we all have other things going on in our lives. We get worn out. We want a vacation and then we want a vacation from the vacation. We want a nap and then we wake up and we're more tired than when we took the nap. And the sad thing is, is that because that's our condition, we can constantly look at God and we can project that on Him and think that when He sympathizes with us, when He has compassion like He had for this woman, for us, we begin to think that all God is is like a sweet old grandma who can throw her arms around us and comfort us and offer us a fresh-baked cookie and a glass of milk and just commiserate with us. But our God is in the heavens and He does whatever He pleases. There is not a single power that compares to Him. He has never been tired a day in His existence. And He never will be. He never looks at your problems and goes, I understand why you're worn out. Never. There's nothing that challenges His authority. He has never had to get a permission slip. He's never had to get a doctor's note. He's never had to walk around with a vaccination card in his pocket. Never. He sits enthroned in glory and nothing compares to him. He has all power and all authority. Don't forget that. When you come to Him in prayer, you don't come to someone who's just there to commiserate. You come to the One who calls the stars by name and they answer. You come to the One who spoke with a word everything that exists into existence. And Hebrews 1.3 tells us that it is by the power of His Word that it all is sustained. That's the One we run to. He's all-powerful. We have to see that He's all-powerful to understand where, where Luke takes us next. Because He tells us that this crowd stands in awe of that. They're amazed by it. They recognize that a great prophet is there. A greater prophet than the great prophets of old because they had to do all kinds of stuff to raise the dead. We don't have time to go into all that, but you can look it up, what Elijah does and these things to, to, to raise the dead. Jesus speaks a word. The report about this goes throughout, verse 17 tells us, the whole of Judea and the surrounding country. And word gets to this guy, this well-dressed guy on a paleo diet, John. 
John the baptizer. John's in prison. And John hears about all these things that Jesus is doing. By these things, Luke obviously means more than just these two miracles, but he's, I think he specifically has heard about this. John calls two of his disciples and sends them to the Lord to ask this question, are you the one who is to come or should we look for another? And these faithful disciples of John go to Jesus and Luke wants us to get this question because it's repeated again in verse 20. When they come to Jesus, they say, John the Baptist has sent us to you saying, are you the one who is to come or should we look for another? Doubt is a part of the life of faith. Now don't hear me wrong. I am not saying that doubt is something to be praised, to be sought after. It's like soreness in the life of an athlete. If you're not sore, it probably means you're not working hard enough. No athlete goes out going, man, I hope I get really sore. I'm just seeking soreness in my life. No, they want to grow stronger, but it's part of it. I believe that doubt is a part of the life of faith. Now, doubt is very different than unbelief. The opposite of faith is not doubt. The opposite of faith is unbelief. You go through the Gospels and you check me on this. See how Jesus responds to unbelief. And then see how He responds to those who are doubting. John here is doubting. I think that's very clear. But John is doubting because he believes. This question by John makes no sense if John has just written off the Old Testament and is going, well, that was a bunch of made-up fairy tales. Those promises are nothing but words on scrolls. They don't matter. No, John is questioning because he believes the promises of the Old Testament. John is questioning because he believes the promises and he knows that his God is able and faithful and he will fulfill them. So John is questioning these things and sending his disciples to Jesus because he believes. This wrestling is a wrestling, I would say, of faith. It's birthed out of faith. It's that moment of doubt that all of us who have fallen for the whole trust fall thing, Right? The person who just says, I'll I won't do it, and doesn't do the trust fall, they don't understand this. But all of us who've done it, the moment you fall far enough back that you've lost your balance, and there's no point of return, there's the thought that goes through your head. Ah, was this a good idea? Why is John wrestling with this? Because he believes the promises of God, and because he is hearing reports of the power and authority of Jesus. And he's saying, Jesus, if you can do that, if you can do that, Jesus, then where is the kingdom? If you can, with a word, make a dead man sit up, where's the restoration of Israel? Where are the rest of the promises? Towards the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, Jesus, in, while He's in Nazareth, He goes into the synagogue, He sits down, and He finds where it's written in Isaiah. For us, it's Isaiah 61. And, and he, he reads the first verse, and 
part of the second verse in Isaiah 61, and he says, today these things are fulfilled in your midst, and he rolls it up and he puts it down. And what, what John is screaming is, what about the rest of Isaiah 61? What about a rebuilt city? If you have all of this power and authority, what are you doing? It's a hard question. That's a question that you and I struggle with who are on this walk of faith. If you've written God off or He's small and insignificant, lacks power and authority to do anything, then you don't face these kind of struggles. But if you believe that your God is able, that the same God who parted oceans and seas and who, who, who raised the dead is the same God that exists now, then you find yourself with John at times asking these questions, God, what are you doing? You just have to look at the world around us and find yourself asking, Lord, how long? How long? How long, Lord? Just to drive this point in, verse 21 Luke tells us in that hour, he, meaning Jesus, healed many people of disease and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who are blind, he bestowed sight. He has the power and authority. And John is saying, then what's going on? Why isn't this happening now? And Jesus responds in verse 22, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, and the dead are raised. Jesus picks all of these passages to say, don't you doubt, John, I am the one. I'm the one. And at the climax of it all, though, he doesn't list another miracle. Instead, he says this, and the poor have good news preached to them. That's why I've come. This time, that's why I've come. Verse 23, he says, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Blessed. This would be in with our beatitudes. Flourishing is the one who is not offended by me. The one who does not reject me. The one who does not turn away from me. I am the one. It's all about me. It's all based upon me. If you stumble over me, if you reject me, then what's the opposite of blessedness? curse. Don't be offended at me, John. Don't be offended at what I'm doing. Don't be offended at my timing. Don't be offended at how I'm using my power and authority now. I understand your struggles. I understand. I know. I'm the one who made the promises. I will fulfill them, but I'm going to do it in my time. Don't be offended at me. This is a challenge for us. This is such a challenge for us. Because we read the promises of God and we believe that God is powerful. We believe that He's mighty. And then we see what's going on and we can find ourselves with John going, are you the one? Or should I look somewhere else? Should I look to money? Should I, should I look to prestige? Should I look to, to some form of, of, of medicating my situation Drugs, alcohol, something? Should I look somewhere else to pleasure? Should I look somewhere else? There's a, a thing that went around social media quite a bit after 
a young lady performed on America's Got Talent. Her stage name is Nightbird. And she had written a post on her blog. And I'm just going to read a part of it because I think it fits here so well. She's a young lady who, before the age of 30, fought cancer three times. And she writes about those wrestlings, wrestling with God. And in that post, she writes this. If an explanation would help, he would write one. If an explanation would help, he would write me one. I know it. But maybe an explanation would only start an argument between us. And I don't want to argue with God. I want to lay in a hammock with him and trace the veins in his arms. I remind myself that I am praying to the God who let the Israelites stay lost for decades. They begged to arrive in the promised land, but instead he let them wander, answering prayers they didn't pray. For 40 years, their shoes did not wear out. Fire lit their path each day. Every morning, he sent them mercy bread from heaven. I look hard for the answers to the prayers that I didn't pray. I look for the mercy bread that he promised to bake fresh for me each morning. I see mercy in the dust, dusty sunlight that outlines the trees, in my mother's crooked fingers, in the blanket my friend left for me, in the harmony of the wind chimes. It's not the mercy that I asked for, but it's mercy nonetheless. And I learn a new prayer. Thank you. It's a prayer I don't mean yet, but I will repeat it until I do. Call me cursed, call me lost, call me scorned, but that's not all. Call me chosen, blessed, sought after. Call me the one who has whispered, call me the one who, <clears throat> who God whispers his secrets to. I am the one whose belly is filled with loaves of mercy that were hidden from me. John wrestles with these things. Trying to understand if you have all this power and authority, what are you doing? Well, after he sends this message back to John, Jesus turns to the crowd. And we don't have time to go into all that he says, but what I want to focus in on is, <clears throat> is Jesus' response to the religious leaders. For they're the ones who rejected John. And what Jesus tells is, is what one commentator calls the parable of the brats. He says that these religious leaders, <clears throat> excuse me, verse 30, who rejected the baptism of John and rejected the purpose of God, he says, well, starting with verse 31, he says, what then shall I compare the people of this generation and what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. Now, the way I understand that is to say it is these religious leaders who are playing the tune and demanding that John and Jesus dance to their tune. We recognize you have power. We recognize you have authority, but we want to control it. You use it the way we say you dance to our tune. And so they said of John, who came not eating bread and drinking wine, that he had a demon. And they say of the Son of Man that he is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. They write them off because they can't control them. Again, I, I have to confess, I find myself tempted here. 
Is this not a wrong way to view the power and authority of God? Is this not a wrong way to understand what we do when we go to Him in prayer? To think if I pray hard enough, if I live a good enough life, then what I'm doing is I'm playing the tune to which God must dance. Don't forget that if He is the God above all, if He has all authority, it means that you and I cannot wield Him. You and I do not control Him. Verse 35, Jesus says, yet wisdom is justified in all of her children. I think as He speaks there of wisdom, what He's saying is, my words, my teaching, they're justified in all of these who are coming. All of these who are believing. All of these who are not offended. Who are not turned off. Instead, they're coming to Me. And how does, does Luke end this chapter? With a story that an obnoxious preacher preached not all that long ago. Of Jesus being invited to a Pharisee's house. And it becomes vividly clear throughout the entire story that at every turn, this Pharisee is offended by Jesus. He is offended by Him. He's offended by Him, and it shows up in the fact that He doesn't anoint His head with oil. He doesn't greet Him with a kiss. He doesn't wash His feet. He's offended by Jesus. It's almost as if Jesus disgusts Him. And He's only invited Him over to His house because He views Himself to have authority over Jesus to determine whether Jesus is a prophet. And to make it all the worse, a sinful woman shows up. And Jesus dares to allow this sinful woman to touch Him. And again, He's offended. But then there's this sinful woman. And she's not offended by Jesus. <laughs> no, she's not offended. She's found the blessedness that Jesus came to offer. She's heard the good news that He came to preach to the poor. Now we don't know this for certain, but Luke gives us no indication that this woman's status in life has changed. We don't know if she's poor, but certainly, certainly, given the way the Pharisee speaks about her, her reputation has not been repaired. It's not a happily ever after. The prince didn't find her glass slipper, marry her, and take her off to the palace. She could, she could have this attitude as to say, Jesus, what are you doing? Why haven't you restored all things and made my life better? She is not living her best life now. But where do we find her? Arguing with Jesus? Offended by Him? No, she's at His feet. Weeping. Weeping, tears of joy, flourishing, blessedness, because she's been pursued, she's been chosen, she's been sought after. She's taken what means she has and bought perfume perfumed oil and has now broken it over his feet and is taking her hair and wiping those feet as she kisses them. And Luke saves the statement of greatest authority to the end of the chapter. 
after telling a parable in which he explains to this Pharisee that he will never understand flourishing. He'll never understand the blessedness that the Messiah has come to bring because he will not accept his sinfulness. He looks at this woman and what does he say to her? He says something greater than a word that cast out a sickness. He says something greater than a word that just raises someone from physical death to physical life. He looks at this woman and he says to her, your sins are forgiven. Now that is authority. That is power. He doesn't ask anyone to forgive her. He looks at her and He says, I am God in the flesh. And I look at you and I say to you, your sins are forgiven. That's what He came to do. John, don't be offended at me. I know you're longing for the kingdom. I know you're longing for the restoration of all things. God has written eternity on our hearts and we're all longing. Creation is groaning. But don't be offended at me. I don't know what you're going through this morning, but I would imagine that some of you this morning are longing, waiting for God to act. It seems as though He's doing nothing, but there is no blessedness, no flourishing, running from God, running away from Him. There's nothing out there. There's nothing of comfort out there. The blessedness is to find yourself at the feet of Jesus, weeping and hearing His words, your sins are forgiven. Because here's the astounding thing. We would like to think, if you and I became superheroes, that we would only use our power for good. The most fictitious part of the Marvel Universe is not the superheroes. It's the fact that they always use their power for good. There is no Captain America. If you and I had that power, guess what we would do with it? The same wicked, sinful stuff that we already do. And just worse... We would cheat and steal and lie and we'd get away with it because nobody could stop us. But Jesus has all power and all authority. And what does He do? In joyful submission to the Father, He bends all of redemptive history towards a cross at Golgotha where He hangs on that cross taking on His shoulders all of the weight of sin that none of us have the power to bear. And then with full authority, He says, it's finished. And don't get it wrong, death does not catch Him. In authority, He lays down His life. having fully satisfied the just wrath of His Father, paying our ransom, lays down His life. And with all of that power and authority, on the third day, He gets up as easy as you and I get up from a nap. Well, in fact, easier. Death couldn't hold Him. The tomb couldn't keep Him in. He walks out of 
that grave, having conquered sin and death so that he can look at this woman who is totally unworthy and say to her, your sins are forgiven for all of eternity. Your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. That's our Jesus. That's his power and his authority. And I know as we look at the world around us, we find ourselves struggling. What are you doing? Are you the one? Should we look for another? Hear me this morning, brothers and sisters. Do not be offended by him. Don't be offended by him. Find the blessedness of drawing near to him. Finding yourself at his feet. Even if it is at moments to voice your complaint in sorrow. Even if it is that your prayers are the tears that roll down your cheek. You lay in the hammock with him and trace his veins. And see that they run to scars. Where he took all of his power and authority to hang on the cross. So that you and I could hear those words. By faith in him. Your sins are forgiven. Go in peace. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for the gift of the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank you that you sent him so that we could see more clearly who you are and what you are like to have these beautiful stories so that we could try and grasp a little better your awesome power and authority. And thank you for the good news of the gospel. We could not have imagined this. Because if we had power and authority like you have, oh, the things we would do, what we wouldn't do. What we wouldn't do. Is offer ourselves up to die. So that sinful, unworthy people might be saved. But we praise you that this morning, this morning, there is that hope. Because Jesus Christ, with all power and authority, went to the cross, suffered and died, and is risen, and is mighty and able to forgive sins. It is in his name we pray these things. Amen.